Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Diversion Audio. A note. This episode contains mature content and descriptions of violence that may be disturbing for some listeners. Please take care in listening. Holly Dunn had been asking for a mirror for days, and no one would give her one. The last time she'd looked at herself, she was home at the Kappa sorority house, brushing her long blonde hair and putting in her little silver hoops. That felt like a lifetime ago. She needed to see her face. Holly's sister, Heather, finally caved. She gave Holly a tiny compact mirror the kind meant for applying blush or powder, the kind that only lets you see one part of your face at a time. Holly stared into the little piece of glass. There was a girl looking back at her, but all she could think was, how is that my face? Her skin was bruised and scratched, etched with lines of dried blood. Everything looked misshapen and strange, especially around the left eye socket, which was so swollen she couldn't open her eye. It wasn't her face, except it was. Someone had done this to her, attacked her, violated her, He tried to kill her, but Holly was still alive, and she wasn't going to let him win.
Welcome to the greatest true crime stories ever told. I'm Mary Kay McBrayer. I'm a writer of true crime. I'm constantly reading about crime, but I'm not necessarily interested in the parts of the stories that make headlines. Those tend to be bloody, dramatic moments. I'm more interested in the people behind these moments and what we can learn about society by looking at their experiences. That's what I explore here every week. I dig into crimes where a woman is not just a victim. She might be the detective, the lawyer, the witness, the coroner, the criminal, or in the case of Holly Dunn, a combination of those roles. As you probably already know, women can do anything. Today's episode, we're calling I Survived a Serial Killer. It's about a woman named Holly Dunn, who is the only known survivor of the brutal, bloody crimes of the so-called railroad killer. You'll get to hear my conversation with Holly herself at the end of this episode. But Holly's story is also about what she did when she survived, how she found strength, power, and how she showed up for the showdown. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Part of my college orientation was on how to avoid predators. I'm not even joking. Upperclassmen put on a skit of how to make sure no one slips roofies in your solo cup. How to know if someone was actually using a condom. What to do if you wake up somewhere you've never seen before. Where the emergency outposts were on campus, just in case. I remember thinking at the time, mm, yes, this is good advice. I'm so glad they told me or I'd never have known any of this. And then a few hours after the meeting, I remember asking myself, why is it my job to avoid horrible people? How is that fair? The answer is, it's not fair. The answer is, sometimes you can't avoid predators. And frankly, no one should have to. But we do have to. Dunn was from an affluent Indiana family, but she wasn't from the kind of blue-blooded privilege that was dissociated from reality. The Dunns had faced more than their fair share of tragedy. Two of Holly's half-siblings, children from her father's first marriage, died young. One from childhood pneumonia. The other, Holly's adored big brother Michael, died in a car crash at age 23. But the Duns were resilient. They leaned on one another and on their church for support. Holly and her sister Heather were extremely close. It was bittersweet for Holly to pack up for college at the University of Kentucky in the autumn of 1995. But she knew she wouldn't be gone for long. After her studies, she planned to come right back into the fold and join her father's hotel business. As it turned out, Holly loved college. She loved her Kappa Kappa Gamma sisters, and as an outgoing, fun-loving kid, she appreciated the social intensity of the college experience. The summer after her junior year, she decided to stay in Lexington and take a couple of extra courses. I don't know about y'all, but when I took summer courses, well, they were the best. Typically, you had one class for three hours, five days a week, for a month, and the rest of your time was just yours. During that summer chill time is when Holly met a tall, sweet kid named Christopher Meyer. It was a hot summer night. She was at a neighborhood bar with her girlfriends celebrating her friend's 21st birthday and wearing silver nail polish. 
Years later, she'd remember the line Christopher used when he walked up to her. She recorded it in her memoir, Soul Survivor. He stuck out his own sandaled foot and said, I have on silver toenail polish too. He was the kind of hippie dude who did things like that, wear nail polish, a hemp necklace, the works. And Holly dug it. They spent the whole night talking. She invited him and his friends to the birthday party her girlfriends were throwing the next night. And he showed up. Remember that feeling when you're young and you have a crush and the crush likes you back? You feel like you're the first people in the world to ever have so much in common. And everything they say is interesting. That's how it was for Holly and Chris. His family was Catholic like hers. He was in Greek life, just like her, Phi Kappa Psi. They both had beloved older sisters. But there was that sense of newness, too, that's such a special part of a crush. Chris introduced Holly to his hippie-leaning interests, like sketching, camping, and jam bands. And that was all new to Holly. He even liked to walk around barefoot. She was completely charmed when he gave her a glittery purple daisy ring. It was a perfect summer. And then it was ending. Time for real school, time for senior year. Holly was excited. Classes started Wednesday, August 27th, 1997. On Thursday, August 28th, she had a date with Chris to attend an off-campus Phi Psi party. She felt happy anticipation as she put on her favorite new brown corduroy pants in her room at the sorority house, slipped into her favorite Birkenstock clogs, and adjusted that silly daisy ring on her hand. It stood out among her usual silver jewelry. A pair of little hoop earrings were the finishing touch. Chris pulled up in his Isuzu Trooper, hello, 1997 popped out of the top of the car with a microphone and shouted for all the sorority sisters to hear, Holly Dunn, come out. It's time to go. Holly laughed out loud, feeling special. This boy was pronouncing for all the world, literally on a loudspeaker, that he wanted her with him, that he liked her just as much as she liked him. She ran downstairs, and then the night began. The party was a little bit boring. There was a keg and plenty of people, but the energy was low. I'm guessing everyone was wasted and full on too much beer. After a couple hours, Holly, Chris, and two of Chris's buddies left. They headed down the street, suburban court, to the nearby train tracks. They had a few beers with them. They were talking, joking around, but all Holly and Chris really wanted to do was talk to each other. Chris's buddies felt it. After a while, they joked they'd better leave the couple alone to their lovey-dovey whispers. They were off to find some more beer. Chris and Holly stayed, settling in for another of their endless chats atop a grassy mound next to the tracks. It was dark and quiet. Trains didn't seem to be passing tonight, but they barely noticed where they were. They were so wrapped up in each other. Chris talked about music, about his recent trip out to Maine for a big fish concert. Typical college student rhapsodies, but 
Holly never forgot this conversation. Holly felt present with Chris, right there, right where they were. But eventually, they came out of the trance, glancing around and remembering that it was late. It was really dark now, the kind that's all inky shadows. They should head back. They walked down the train tracks, hand in hand, arms swinging, back towards suburban court. Back towards the party, their friends, and Chris's car. But they didn't get far. A man stepped out of the bushes in front of them, inches in front of them. Even that close, in the dark, It was hard to see his features clearly. But Holly would never forget anything about this night. She could see he was short, much shorter than six foot five Chris, and probably a couple inches shorter than Holly, who was five foot eight. He had a medium, wiry build, tan skin, wavy dark hair, dark, square framed glasses. She and Chris stepped back in surprise, and he asked them where their friends went. Immediately, Holly felt nervous. If this guy knew they'd been with friends, he'd been watching them for a long time. He muttered, give me your money. Chris stepped in front of her, saying calmly that they didn't have any. Holly cracked a nervous joke about being broke college kids. But the man barely seemed to hear them. He just told them to get on their knees. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded. 
and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Before I jump back into what happened that night at the railroad tracks, I'm going to pause for a minute and give you the chance to skip ahead if you need to. To be frank, this next part is the part the content warning warns you about. But it is important, so walk through it with me if you can. Back to the railroad tracks on August 28, 1997, just blocks from the Phi Kappa Psi party. The stranger in front of Holly and Chris ordered them to their knees. They stood, frozen. Then he was yanking Chris down by the arm. Chris was larger. He could have fought back, but he was a gentle kid. He wasn't going to escalate the situation. You were never supposed to escalate a mugging. That was how it got dangerous. Chris knelt on the rocky tracks, letting the man pull off his backpack. Holly did what he did, kneeling beside him. But that's when Holly noticed something. Something in this stranger's hand. It was sharp. Maybe an ice pick or a screwdriver. Chris and Holly both seemed to realize the intensity of the situation at the same time. They started talking. Fast. They told the man to take their ATM cards, credit cards, Chris's car keys, whatever he wanted. But once again, he didn't really seem to be listening. Instead, without taking anything out of the backpack, he walked behind Chris. He tied the straps around Chris's arms, binding them in a web of nylon. Then he walked towards Holly. He reached toward her waist. Chris started pleading with him, begging him not to hurt her. The man snarled back, commanding him to shut up and stop looking at him. Then he grabbed Holly's belt, unbuckled it, pulled it out of her belt loops, and used it to tie up her arms. Holly and Chris kept talking, kept pleading, but by now they knew. This was not a mugging. The man dragged Chris across rocks and broken glass into the ditch beside the tracks. Holly scrambled after them on her knees. She didn't want to be dragged next. He told them he had a gun and his friend was nearby. He left briefly. They heard the sound of ripping cloth. Holly was trying to get the leather binding off her arms. She whispered with Chris, then the man was back, tying their legs with new bindings, gagging them. Holly stuck out her tongue as he did so, so it would be loose enough to fall off. It did. After that, she finally got her arms out of the belt. She kept them behind her back so he wouldn't see. 
the man left again. And again, he seemed jittery, pacing. He only walked away for a few moments at a time. But Holly used the moments he turned his back. She moved closer to Chris. She pulled off his gag. She tried to untie his arms from their effective bindings. He urged her to run. She said she wouldn't and put her arms behind her back again as the man turned towards them once more. He didn't seem to notice them getting closer or Holly's loose arms. Every time he approached them, he just talked. He demanded that they stop looking at him, kept saying he had a gun, repeated that his friend was waiting nearby, and then paced. He couldn't keep still, like he was trying to decide what was next. Chris begged him not to hurt Holly, told him, do whatever you want to me, but please just let her go. Holly thought to herself, I'm going to remember your face, your scars, your tattoos, and I'm not going to forget, because if I live through this, I will get you. The man walked away. Chris said to Holly, stay calm. Everything is going to be okay. She'd think about those words many, many times. Because when the man came back next, he moved more slowly. He was carrying something large and heavy, clearly struggling under the weight. He held it over Chris, who was lying face down in the underbrush. And then he dropped it. The sound it made, it seemed to never stop. In Holly's mind, the man dropped that massive object again and again and again. Later, she learned he actually only dropped it once. That was all it took. The repetition was in her own mind, repeating that horrible sound. Chris was gone. Holly started to pray like she might die. Instead of killing her, the man grabbed her and untied her legs, not seeming to care that her arms were already untied. He had the weapons, after all. That sharp pick, and as far as Holly knew, a gun. He had the power. He raped her. She tried to dissociate. Still, she dug her hands into the dirt, ripping off her fingernails. She would leave as much DNA as she could for the police. She knew, even then, that whatever happened to her, he couldn't get away with it. For now, that meant doing what she could to make him see her as human. So that, maybe, he'd let her live. Marvel with me for a second at Holly's presence of mind. Amazing, really. She told him her name was Megan. She asked his name. He said James Whitford, Whitby, something like that. She said, please don't kill me. He said he wouldn't. When he finished, she asked if he would please pull up her pants. He did.
maybe he was telling the truth. Maybe he wouldn't kill her. She told him she'd never breathe a word of this to anyone if he let her go. He reached down to tug at her earring. It wouldn't come out. She told him how to undo the latch. He took a ring from her hand, too. Not the daisy ring. That, she'd realized later, was gone forever, somewhere in the rocks and dirt of those train tracks. Then he covered her and Chris with leaves and twigs. And then she couldn't remember anything else. Holly had no idea how long had passed when she regained consciousness. She was covered in blood. Everything felt like it was coming apart. She would eventually learn she had a broken eye socket and a cracked jaw and skull. Her body was black and blue. He thought he'd killed her. Somehow she stumbled down the tracks toward a house, knocked on the door, The college kid inside laid her on his couch, called an ambulance, thought she wouldn't make it. Tried to keep her awake until the paramedics arrived so she might survive. She kept repeating, my friend is out there. If she was alive, maybe Chris was alive too. At the hospital, a nurse asked her if she wanted to take emergency contraception. Yes, she did. They did the rape kit, which is a term you hear a lot, but maybe can't visualize exactly what it means. It's a medical exam, but it's focused on collecting DNA that might identify a sexual attacker. So it involves swabs of the mouth, vagina, under the fingernails, anywhere there might be DNA evidence. It also involves collecting garments that might have that kind of evidence too, like underwear. And sometimes the medical professionals take photos to document injuries. It'll look a little different depending on what the assault looked like, but it's never fun. Holly knew she needed to get through it because this man's DNA was all over her. And a rape kit would be the first step in identifying him and bringing him to justice. She was still thinking about that promise she'd made to herself out on the tracks. He wouldn't get away with this. As the hospital staff wrapped up the exam, they assured Holly they'd gotten what they needed. They also told her that she had no fatal injuries. There was a lot of blood and a lot of pain. The man had beaten her unconscious after he raped her, and her body showed the marks. But she would live. Again, the presence of mind she had. I mean, I follow true crime, and I know some of the things you're supposed to do, but knowing you should do it and actually doing it in the moment are two different things, and she did both. A quick reminder that I get the chance to talk to Holly at the end of this episode, so stay tuned for that. But first, back to 1997. The months of physical recovery were obviously extremely difficult. There were so many physical marks of what had happened. Holly's mouth was wired shut for weeks while her jaw healed. 
thank God she had incredible support from her family. Her sister and parents flew out to Lexington the second they got the news. Her sorority sisters were at the hospital every day, too. At one point, 16 of them packed into the little space, crowded around the bed and told Holly the kind of light, fun stories of college life that made her feel like her old self, for a little while at least. And the detective on the case, Detective Craig Sorrell, was as gentle as he could be when it came to taking her statement. He told her they could stop at any time, that he could walk down the hall, come back later, give her whatever space she needed. But Holly wanted to answer Sorrell's questions. She wanted to give him every detail she possibly could, even if that meant reliving that unfathomably horrible night. More than anything, she wanted justice. The thing is, as the weeks dragged into months, despite the dedication of the Lexington Police Department and especially Detective Sorrell, there was no progress on finding the attacker. Not before he killed again. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. It was May of 1999, close to two years after the attack on Holly Dunn. Holly had started the long, hard process of rebuilding her life after unimaginable trauma. She'd left school and then come back 
she'd joined a support group for rape survivors and spent time exploring and deepening her faith. But she still slept with the biggest kitchen knife under her pillow because he was still out there. That's when Detective Craig Sorrell knocked on Holly's Lexington apartment door. They'd built up a close relationship by now. He'd take her out for lunch and a chat and keep her apprised of the work he was doing on the case. But still, the unannounced visit was a surprise, especially considering there hadn't been much by way of updates on the case for a long time, and especially considering the unusual look on his normally kind, serious face. Today, he looked excited. And then he told her they finally had a suspect. Sorrell got the call on May 27th. It was from an FBI agent down in Houston who'd been combing through a national database on violent criminals, one in which Sorrell had logged the details of Holly and Chris's case. This agent explained that he wasn't sure if this meant anything, but he was investigating three murders in Texas, and they all happened right near the railroad tracks. Now, railroad tracks are a pretty unusual way to connect cases. Normally, investigators will link cases based on a similar victim profile, a similar weapon, or that kind of thing. But in this Texas case, investigators were coming up dry on those counts. These murders involved different weapons, and they involved apparently random targets. But the cases shared something, a certain vicious brutality, and a location near train tracks, which had police suspecting that they were connected. It had them suspecting they had a serial killer on their hands. December 16th, 1998, Dr. Claudia Benton, a pediatric neurological researcher, was beaten to death, stabbed with a kitchen knife, and sexually assaulted in her home in a small affluent suburb in Houston. Her husband and twin daughters were out of town at the time. They came home to find her face down on the floor, head in a plastic bag, and her upper body covered in blankets. Evidence showed that after Dr. Benton's murder and rape, her killer went into the kitchen and made himself a snack. Then he drove away in her Jeep. May 2nd, 1999, a pastor named Norman Skip Cernick and his wife Karen were found dead in their home in Weimar, a rural community halfway between Houston and San Antonio. They were both in bed, their heads bashed in with a sledgehammer taken from their tool shed. Karen had been raped. Again, their attacker drove away in their car. There were fingerprints and DNA evidence at both scenes. The evidence matched. Both scenes were also close to railroad tracks. 
now, the FBI wanted to see if there might be other victims linked by those same railroad tracks, that same brutality. They wanted to check the DNA from Holly's rape kit. Sorrell had said yes. That process was in motion. They were waiting for results. But for now, Sorrell had something for Holly to look at. Photos. There were photos of the man who the police suspected committed the murders down in Texas, based on the fingerprints at the Texas crime scenes. He was a longtime criminal with decades of mugshots. He'd been in and out of prison for crimes including destroying private property, grand theft auto, burglary, and aggravated assault. One of his convicted crimes was beating an 80-year-old man nearly to death during a robbery down in Florida. The elderly man died a few months later, but investigators couldn't definitively tie his death to the assault, so they couldn't go after the perpetrator for murder. Sorrell pulled out the pictures for Holly. Immediately, she knew it was him. She'd never let herself forget that face. The man who killed Chris. The man who left her for dead. They knew who he was, finally. Now, they just had to catch him. That was easier said than done, despite the photos, despite the fingerprints and the DNA evidence, which ended up definitively tying Holly's case to the ones down in Texas, by the way. Despite the fact that investigators were starting to connect more and more cases to this man, he went by the alias Rafael Resendez Ramirez, and he'd been in and out of the U.S. since the 1970s but his citizenship was Mexican. He'd been deported at least four times, and he hopped freight trains to get around the country, which explained the railroad connection between cases. That also meant he was moving constantly, without a license plate or even a bus ticket purchase to identify him. He was a hard man to pin down. He could be anywhere in two countries, anywhere the trains went. Investigators went to the news to try to get his face out there. He was featured on the TV program America's Most Wanted. Holly did an interview for the show, reliving her experience at the railroad once again. She might not be an investigator herself, but she was part of this fight to find him. She needed to be. The tips came in. The public was enraged. Someone breaking into people's homes, attacking people so brutally and seemingly randomly, it was both terrifying and heartbreaking. Holly's personal story helped put a face to all those victims' pain since none of the rest were around to speak for themselves. No one else had survived. And then there were more of them. More victims. 
June 4th, 1999. Noemi Dominguez, a 26-year-old Houston elementary school teacher, was sexually assaulted and bludgeoned to death in her apartment. Her attacker stole her car and drove it about 90 miles to Schulenburg, a small town not far from Weimar, where the pastor and his wife were murdered. In Schulenburg, 73-year-old widow and grandmother of six, Josephine Convica, was murdered with the same pickaxe used to kill Noemi Dominguez. The axe was found lodged in Josephine's forehead. Both Noemi and Josephine lived right near railroad tracks. The DNA from both their murder scenes matched the DNA from the other attacks, including Holly's. It seemed that as the nationwide search for Rafael Resendez Ramirez accelerated, so did his murder spree. On June 12th, investigators got another tip. But this one wasn't a suspected sighting. It was a call from someone who claimed to be the cousin of the killer. He gave them the address of the killer's sister, Manuela Maturino Karkovitz. Investigators spoke with her on June 14th. She said she would help them find her brother. Now, I'm not sure what these relatives said to the police on the phone, but I know that later, Resendez Ramirez's relatives would say they couldn't believe that a member of their family would perpetuate these crimes when they first saw his name on the news. Maybe, at this point, they thought that with his face all over TV, his best bet for clearing his name would be to turn himself in. Or maybe some of them had seen something in him, something they maybe couldn't have named, but made them suspect maybe he had committed these crimes. And maybe they were afraid he'd commit more of them. On June 15th, he killed two more people, this time in Illinois. George Morber, an 80-year-old retired prison guard, and Carolyn Frederick, his adult daughter. Once again, the killer made himself a snack in his victim's kitchen. Then he drove away in their car. On June 21st, the FBI added Rafael Resendez Ramirez to the 10 most wanted fugitives list. They posted a $125,000 reward for information leading to his arrest and conviction. Holly prayed that he didn't come looking for her, his one living victim. Then, on July 11th, investigators got a call from Manuela, the railroad killer's sister. She said she'd communicated with her brother through another relative. He was in Mexico, and he admitted to it, to the whole family. 
the newspapers, the TV specials, it was all true. He'd committed these crimes. But Manuela had more for the police. Her brother was ready to turn himself in. I'm not sure where that decision came from. Maybe it was the pressure of the aggressive manhunt and constant news coverage. Maybe he thought it was inevitable he'd get caught and he was ready to get it over with. Or maybe his family convinced him that he had to stop. Maybe they convinced him to turn himself in. Either way, it happened on Tuesday, July 13th, 1999. It was morning around 9 a.m. A Texas Ranger, a U.S. Marshal, and an FBI agent stood on the Isleta Zaragoza International Bridge in El Paso, Texas. With them were Manuela Maturino Karkiewicz and her pastor. Walking towards them from the other side of the border was a petite man in glasses. His real name was Angel Materino Resendiz. The Texas Ranger, Drew Carter, later told the reporters, he stuck out his hand, and I stuck out my hand, and we shook hands, and then I handcuffed him, and he was in custody. Holly watched this unfold on TV, along with the rest of America and much of the world. This was an international story by now. There was relief. There was joy. But for Holly, there was also that pending question of justice. I want to take a moment and reiterate the mission of our show again. We want to tell the greatest true crime stories of all time. And it's important to us that women not be depicted as only victims. Not because they're not victims, but because they're never just victims. Holly was a victim here, but she was about to become a key witness as well. And it wasn't long before she was on the ground, in person, helping the case once again, in Houston, Texas, at the trial. A reporter asked the prosecutor on Resendiz's case to describe Resendiz. Devin Anderson replied this way, I don't understand what makes somebody do that to people, and I don't really care. If he's guilty, then I'm going to do everything I can to prosecute him to the fullest extent that the law will allow me. The case was a strong one particularly considering the large amount of fingerprints and DNA evidence found in all the crime scenes. That DNA concretely connected Resendiz to all the murders and Holly's rape. Devin didn't really need Holly's eyewitness account to bring her man to justice, but she asked her to come testify anyway. Like any good prosecutor, Devin knew that part of her job was to weave the facts of the case into the story of the case. And Holly Dunn 
as the only surviving victim of Resendiz's crimes, could help tell that story. Could give the story a face and a heart. Just like she had on national television, helping find the killer. Now, she would help bring him to justice. trial started in early May 2000, the same time Holly was walking across the stage in Lexington to receive her diploma from the University of Kentucky. She wasn't called to testify until the 22nd, near the end of the trial. She'd chosen her outfit carefully, a black skirt and suit jacket. Her family was there with her. Devin Anderson asked her if she was okay if she was ready. She could see the terror in Holly's eyes as Holly nodded silently. Years later, Holly would explain her fear in an interview with the CBS News show 48 Hours. I talk about the trial as the hardest day of my life. What I was most worried about, I think, when I testified was seeing him again. Devin looked at Holly intently that morning and she understood. She told Holly to stay calm. And then she told her not to look at Resendiz in the courtroom, not until she told her to. Once again, Holly nodded. She'd promised herself, lying in the dirt, that he will not get away with this. And she stood by that promise. She would not let him get away with this. Devin was gentle with Holly on the witness stand. Holly remembers her first question clearly in that same interview with CBS News. The first question was, what'd you do last weekend? And so I was like, I graduated from college. It felt good for me to be able to say, you know, I graduated from college in front of the guy who basically could have ruined my life and destroyed it. And not that he cared, because I don't think he did. For me to be able to say, you didn't destroy me. I'm still here. I'm still strong. I'm still the same person I was. It felt good. It felt, you know, like I, I finally had my chance. From there, answering the questions got harder. Devin asked Holly about the night at the railroad track. As Holly went through harrowing detail after detail, she began to cry. The jurors cried. Even Devin's eyes were glistening. Holly kept going. And then, the moment Devin had warned her about. Devin asked Holly if the man who attacked her was in the courtroom. She asked Holly to say, for the record, what he was wearing today. Holly finally turned her head. She pointed at him. By now she was sobbing, but she gasped out her answer. The white shirt. That was it. The defense tried to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. The jurors didn't buy it. Angel Maturino Resendiz was guilty, they said, and he deserved the death penalty. 
Resendiz actually welcomed that punishment over life in prison. And although his lawyers still fought it with appeals, in the end, on June 27, 2006, he was killed by lethal injection. Holly was invited to be there. She chose not to attend. She was happy with the punishment, happy to know that she'd never have to fear Resendiz again. But it was time to put anger, to put violent death in her past. She had a life to focus on. Holly married. She has two children now. And even though justice has been served, Holly Dunn didn't stop at just witnessing. She turned her trauma into something that would help others. She speaks about her experience to groups around the country, sharing information about safety, healing, dealing with trauma, and her own journey. Devin Anderson, the prosecutor in the Resendiz case, said the following to CBS News about Holly's work. Holly is a hero because she did not let what happened to her destroy her. She decided to make it her reason to live, her reason to help people. Beautifully stated. And I can't wait to share my conversation with Holly with you right after the break. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Holly 
Kelly, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. It is so nice to meet you. I'm really excited that I get to uh, pick your brain a little bit about all the things you've been doing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to start by how did you go from, you know, recovering and then now you are the advocate? What was that journey like? So I was speaking to everybody I could, right? Like, Because I realized how much talking was part of my healing. So, I mean, I was doing okay. it to anybody that would listen. I was like, I, what groups, let me, who, who wants to hear me? You know, like, cause I knew I got power from it. It was like my, you know, I, I, I felt healed by doing it. So, um, I was doing it very often and speaking to anybody that would listen. And then I had people start say to me, how can we help you? And I was like, I don't know. What do you mean? <laughs> you know, like I, I, and then I'm, I'm like in my mind, I'm thinking, do I need to start a foundation? Should I help a community organization that already exists? Like I'm thinking about this, right? It's in my head. And then I get a phone call. I'm at work one day and I get a phone call and a guy says, Hey, we want to open an advocacy center. Um, and we want to name it after you. What do you think about that? And, and of course I'm like, um, what's an advocacy center. I had to Google it cause I didn't yeah. know what it was. And then I was like, oh my gosh, like, yes. I was like, I'm going to have to be more involved if it has my name on it. But I mean, yes, I'm, I'm game and let's get this going in our city. So um, we partnered together to create Holly's House. And the, I mean, it, it, it couldn't have come at a better time because I was seeking out something to like be a part of. Well, that's perfect. I love to hear when things actually come together and, you know, yeah. people with similar visions and uh, motivations and goals can can make it work. Yeah, I love that. Um, will you tell our listeners what Holly's House actually is and does? Sure. So Holly's House is an adult child advocacy center in Evansville, Indiana. So that's my hometown. And it is a location where victims of intimate crimes can come to be interviewed. So they can be interviewed through a multidisciplinary approach where the victim feels supported and they can tell the story of the worst thing that ever happened to them and and tell it one time and it, it's not so traumatizing on them. Um, okay. But then we also help people get mental health services. We don't provide those, but we help them get to the mental right. health services or support groups or you know, um, an advocate, whatever they might need, we can become that location that we help them find those, those healing processes possibly. Um, and then we also do prevention education. So we teach in the local schools, um, prevention education, and we've taught to over 90,000 kids. I mean, it, it, it is about prevention as well as helping the victim. That's beautiful. And I love that you said, like, even though it doesn't necessarily provide the resources, you know how to get to them, which from what I have heard secondhand and even like firsthand, right? Like the, it's hard to find what you need, especially if you don't know what you need. So it's really, that's super um, helpful. It's really become overwhelming. I mean, it can become yeah. overwhelming to try to find that for yourself. Totally. Like in immediately too, because you're not just seeking it like in a totally level state of mind either, you know, so any small setback is like, well, done trying, <laughs> you that's know, so I, always, I, think I always tell the loved ones of people mm -hmm. and, and anybody that's, that's gone through an experience like I did or through sexual assault, that kind of thing. I always tell people that the one thing they can do because you have no control over right. their healing, but the one thing that a loved one can do is 
inform yourself about the resources that are in your community. So know about the resources that might be available to that loved one in the community. And then when they do come to you and say, I really need some help, you're like, I know where to call. That's actually like part of the next thing I wanted to ask you about was, um, it, you know, I was really struck by how central family and your personal support system were to you on your journey. And so for people struggling through tough experiences on their own, like what's a good place to start? Right. So the truly like that support system that you need, because you do need someone in your corner, you have to think Definitely. sometimes outside the box on who that can be. So it doesn't okay. have to, it, and it only has to be one person. It does not okay. have to be a, a large support system. If you have one person that believes you, that listens to you, that lets you talk, that's your support system. So it could be, you know, a, a teacher, a, a family member, a friend, a pastor, a therapist. It could be so many different people that is that person for you. And has there been any surprise person where you're like, I didn't think that was the person who was going to come through? For uh, me, it's amazing the people that I've kept in touch with. I mean, I've kept wow. in touch with the EMT that rode in the ambulance with wow. me. I've kept in touch with nurses that took care of me in the hospital. I've kept in touch with the guy who called 911 for me. I mean, those people are all part of my, you know, experience. The My attack that happened, they're all like, the aftermath of it. And they were like my first support system. You right, know, they were like right. the person that called 911 for me was like the first person that did something for me after this happened. So, I mean, those are all still people that I keep in touch with that those are all people that I would have never known had this not happened. And I'm really thankful that they helped me when I needed it. That's awesome. I never, I mean, I, I didn't think of it like that, but um, so the part Two of that question was, let's say, you know, I know someone who has gone through some kind of trauma and I want to be helpful, but right. I don't really know where to start. Sometimes not doing anything and like staying away because that's what we do because we're afraid we're going to say something right. wrong. Right. is the wrong thing to do. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. the one, like I, I, I mean, I've had, I've gone through other hard times in my life and I even had a friend come to me one time when I went through something hard and she said, you know, I have no idea what to say to you, but just know I'm going to sit here and you can do whatever you need to do. You can cry. You can laugh. I'm non-judgmental sitting here for you. Right. So just show up. A lot of okay. times that's all you have to do. Probably the best thing you can do because the person probably is going to tell you how mm -hmm. you can help them. Or if not at all, you're just that person that could be their support system that's sitting there supporting them. Is there anything that you want to talk about or that you want to make sure that people know about? I mean, we covered a lot. I, I, you know, I work so much now with um, victims and with survivors that, you know, I feel like my message has kind of morphed into um, just that you can get through anything. I mean, that life is hard. And I mean, we all have hard times in our lives. And people come to me all the time and say, what happened to me isn't like what happened to you. And I'm like, but it happened to you. And to you, this is a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, we all have stories. We all have bad things that happen, but we find strength in each other. We find strength in ourselves when we think that we have no strength. And I think people can get through anything. We're, we're resilient. Good things are going to come. I mean, it always has. That's what's amazing is that, you know, from this horrible day has come all this good. And like my yeah. whole life's mission is because of this horrible day that happened. But 
you can't focus on the bad, you focus on the good. And, and it, I mean, it's just amazing once that mindset changes of you can, that you can actually see the good, it can change your life. Wise words from Holly Dunn. I'm afraid I have a less inspiring, more terrifying woman coming up for you on our next episode. Join me next week on the greatest true crime stories ever told for a story set in the early days of American crime, when the system for bringing murderers to justice was in its infancy. But when your crimes were as flagrant as Amy Archer Gilligan's, someone was bound to catch on eventually. I'd also like to shout out the source which made it possible to tell this story, Holly Dunn's memoir, Soul Survivor. I highly recommend you check it out, as there are so many parts of Holly's incredible story that I just didn't have time to get into. I'd also like to shout out the CBS News 48 Hours episode on Holly's story, on which Holly and others involved in the case give incredible interviews as well. For more information about this case and other cases we cover on the show, visit diversionaudio.com. Sign up for Diversion's newsletter and be among the first to hear about our special behind-the-scenes features with the hosts and actors from Diversion's podcasts, more shows you'll love from Diversion and our partners, and other exclusive tidbits you can't get anywhere else. That's diversionaudio.com to sign up for the newsletter. The Greatest True Crime Stories Ever Told is a production of Diversion Audio. Your host is me, Mary Kay McBrayer. This episode was written by our editorial director, Nora Battelle. Our show is produced and directed by Mark Francis. Our development team is Emma DeMuth and Jacob Bronstein. Theme music by Tyler Cash. Executive producers, Jacob Bronstein, Mark Francis, and Scott Waxman. Diversion Audio. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.